lot of empty seats over here. You know, sometimes it's not good to advertise in the bulletin who's speaking on certain dates, but it's, it's nice to see you all here this morning and have an opportunity. We're actually here for three weeks. It's so nice to be home, you know. Brantford is home, and it's always nice to be here and have the privilege of being able to speak these two weeks, and then the last week we'll just be here to enjoy the fellowship and listen to the ministry of God's Word, and then we head off to the Philippines. So we're in about two weeks, I think 15, 16 days, something like that, we'll be heading off to the Philippines for a month. We will leave on September 13th and arrive back on October 10th. I'll be speaking up in the mountains where we'll go visit the saints that we worked with for the last eight years we were there, have some time with them, and then we'll be down in uh, Laguna and speaking at a conference there for missionaries. It's a missionary retreat that happens every year where the missionaries come to be refreshed and to have ministry that will help and encourage them. So often when we are on the field, it, we do not receive that kind of ministry. We don't, we're giving out and giving out and giving out so often that we don't have the opportunities to just sit and hear the Word of God taught. And so looking forward to that opportunity as well. The, um, that song we sang at the beginning of this second group of songs, it, was, it, has, it has taken a long time for me to finally be able to sing those words without tears in my eyes. You know, I, I had tears starting to form in them today as we sang them, especially when you get to the phrase where it says that you, there's pain in the offering. There's pain in the offering, but blessed be your name. And then it's those words, He gives and He takes away. He gives and He takes away. And I look back on the ministry that we had over all the years that the Lord blessed us to have in the Philippines. And then He takes away and He changes things. And that's okay. We learn to praise the Lord where we are in the ministries that He has given to us. So we're thankful for those things. And we're also thankful to this assembly. We will always be thankful to this assembly. This assembly has been so supportive of us over all the years that we have been in the Philippines. And even now that we're home, your support has meant the world to us. It has been that which has sustained us in many, many times of our lives. And we are very thankful for your prayers and very thankful for your continued prayers for this ministry that we are involved in now. Turn with me, please, to Luke. Luke chapter 16. Now, if you'll remember, uh, and may remember, that uh, last time I was here and shared with you, we shared out of Luke as well. Then we were in chapter 12. Because we were, as I explained last time, I have been working through the book of Luke on and off over the last almost three years now, looking at the different uh, things in the book of Luke, is concentrating on one certain narrative, um, narrative tool that is leading me through the book of Luke, which we won't go into now. But I have been enjoying looking at Luke afresh. And last time we were together, we looked at chapter 12. And in chapter 12, we saw the fact that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ divided. And it divided even into the most intimate of relationships between, between a mother and a daughter, and a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, and between a father and a son. Between all those intimate relationships, the Lord divides. Because when He comes in, there can be no middle road. When we choose to follow the Savior, when we choose to walk with Him, there's no turning back. And so we're thankful to the Lord for the salvation that we have, but we're 
recognize that salvation oftentimes comes comes persecution and and comes those things which uh, those of our friends and our family who turn against us because of our faith in the Lord Jesus. And then we went on into chapter 13, and we noticed in chapter 13 those, those interesting accounts of those who had died suddenly. The ones, remember, that uh, had their blood mingled with their sacrifices, those Galileans who had come down and had, had uh, the soldiers had come down and for some kind of insurrection or something, we're not told what the cause was, but they were killed there in the temple courts and their blood was mixed, as it were, with the blood of the sacrifices which they brought. And suddenly they had faced death. And so the question became, these people must have been more wicked than the others because they suddenly were killed. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, no, no, no. Do not think that way because unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then He told the story also of those twelve that died when the Tower of Siloam fell down in, in Jerusalem. And, and, and so these people of Judah were just as guilty and sin and the, the principle of sin which brought about death occurred to them rather suddenly. It's not the timing that is important. It's the relationship that one bears with the Lord Jesus Christ that is of paramount importance. Because if any of us in this room who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ were to suddenly die today, oh, that would be glory for you. And you would enter into the presence of the Lord. But someone in the same fate who does not know the Lord will face something very, very different. And separation from God forever. And so we enjoyed, I enjoyed, that study of those portions. And I hope they were beneficial to you as we also went through them last time. Now we're going to move forward in the narrative. And we're going to come to chapter 16. Obviously, there's a bunch of spaces in between. I happen to be here now, so you happen to be here now. And that's how it works. And I want to look at this story of the rich man and Lazarus. Let's read it together. Verse 19 of chapter 16 of Luke. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in torment in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides this, besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, 
so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot. Nor can those from here pass from there pass to here. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they repent, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize when we approach Your Word that we are dependent upon Thy Spirit to teach us or we will learn nothing of eternal value. We pray, Lord, that Your Spirit might speak this morning to us. That we might hear the things that You want us to hear and learn the things You want us to learn. That we may be walking in ways that bring honor and glory to You in our study of Your Word and in our day-to-day lives. So, Father, we commit this time into Thy care and ask that Thy Spirit would lend His help. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I can remember, and I can kind of still hear their voices echoing in my mind as uh, I was sitting in classes at Emmaus. This goes back maybe two or three years. goes back many, many years, 40, almost 45 years now, sitting in classes at Emmaus and hearing the professor say from time to time, context. Remember the context. They would say, they would ask a question of you and you're sitting in the classroom hoping they won't call on you, but they call on you and you're looking at a particular verse and he says, Ken, What does that mean? And you begin to give an explanation, and and while you're in the middle, you'll hear the voice say, context, don't forget the context. And I can remember John Harper in particular used to like to say that little axiom, and it goes like this, text without context is pretext for a proof text. So it sounds like a complicated little saying, but what he is saying is that the text that you are dealing with, if you do not put it in its proper context, then it becomes a pretext. It's something almost like you're trying to hide what its real meaning is. And if you're trying to hide what its real meaning is, that's nonsense, because that's not what you're trying to accomplish. You're trying to get from the Word of God those things which the Spirit of God wants to teach. Now, just like Ed, I enjoy watching his videos when they come out on Facebook and I'm seeing the houses that are being sold. You know, you see that, you see that drone sits up way up high and it looks down. Just about every one of them starts that way, I think. At least the ones I viewed. They start up, it starts up relatively high. And as you look down at the home, you can see the yard, you can see the home. And beautiful job, by the way. 
you can see the home and you can see the yard. You kind of have an idea if it's fenced in. You got an idea if it has a pool in the back. You have, you have a pretty good idea of things, but it doesn't linger there for long and it begins to come down. And as it comes down, that drone comes down and points at the house now, you're beginning to see more details of the house. You begin to see what the porch is like. You begin to see where the, where the windows are placed. And then it scans around the house and sees all the exterior of the home and you begin to see more detail and you begin to understand and comprehend a little bit more about what the house is like. And then you go through the door and you enter into the house and you begin to see the rooms inside the home. He's going from the big picture down to a closer zoomed in picture to an intimate picture of the inside of the home. Then oftentimes he'll pull back out and you'll see it from a distance again. And it'll bring you back to where he started. Kind of like context. That's kind of like context. For this particular story, it may be a parable or it may be a story. And we'll look at that in just a, a few moments. In this particular story, we need to have some context if we're going to be able to understand it more completely. And understand the lessons of it. You read it, right, reading it right on face value, you can gather a lot of lessons, can't you? Just from the face value of what it is, you can gain a lot of insight and a lot of understanding. But when you zoom out a bit and take it within its context, you know, when you're reading New Testament, I'll just throw this in here and this won't cost you anything extra. When you're reading a New Testament context, and you come across a place, which you often will, where they quote something out of the Old Testament, make sure you go back to the Old Testament context to see what he is speaking about in that context. When you apply it in the New Testament context, you have a more accurate understanding of why he chose that verse. Why did he pull that verse out and place it? Because sometimes they look kind of odd where they're placed. And you say, well, why did he say that? Go back and look. Get the context of it. So what we want to begin with today, and I have two weeks, and so we'll see how far along we get. I want to begin taking that big picture look. And we'll do this just for a few moments this morning. Because there are two principles... Two principles I want to draw out of the Old Testament that apply directly to the context of Luke 16 and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The first one we want to go to is that of Abraham. Now, we know a lot about Abraham, don't we? We have learned a lot about Abraham over the years. And Abraham, of course, finds himself in this story. And so we need to kind of zoom out for a moment and get a a little bit of context concerning one area of Abraham's life. And that is, how is a man justified before God? How is a man justified before God? Oftentimes we get this idea in our minds, not you so much, but you get an idea in your mind sometimes that the Old Testament covenant was a covenant of works. And you did all these works and that's how you achieved your salvation. And that is absolutely false. No one in the Old Testament achieved righteousness by his works. It was always by 
faith, wasn't it? You remember after the encounter that Abraham had with Melchizedek, and then he has an encounter with the Lord himself. And in that encounter in chapter 15, the Lord, he, he says to the Lord, well, what am I to do? I have no heir. And the Lord says, I promise you an heir, and I'm going to give you an heir. Look up at the stars and count them. So shall your descendants be. And what does it say? It says, Abraham questioned the Lord. No. Abraham believed God. And his belief in God was accredited unto him as righteousness. It was belief. It was faith. And then when you get into, of course, when you get into the, into the prophets, you get to Habakkuk where he says, the just one will live according to his faith. The just will live by faith. And Paul will pick up on that. He'll pick up on that and we'll see it in Romans chapter 1 where he talks about the just live by faith. And he also takes the portion that we looked at in chapter 15 of, of Genesis and he will also take that portion and say and talk about the faith of Abraham. How, how Abraham was justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And he will do the same thing when he gets to Galatians. And he will use that same quote out of Habakkuk 2.5 and say that the just one is by faith. The just live by faith. Not by their works. Not by their righteousness. No one can save themselves, Old Testament economy or New Testament economy, based on their works. That's not how it works in the, in the, in the formula and plan of God. Well, the Old Testament had its sacrifices, didn't it? Didn't they have to bring the sacrifices? Wasn't that a form of work? It was a form of obedience. It was a form of obedience to the things that the Lord demanded. And it was based on the sacrifice and the principles and the picture of obedience in the bringing of the sacrifice as God had commanded that could provide atonement and covering until the time when the Lord would come and give His life. And then that death would cover all the sin of those who had believed in the Old Testament. And so, keeping that in mind, keeping that one biblical principle in mind that we, that we gain from the life of Abraham, we're talking about the redemption principle. How is a man saved? It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, he saved us. And we let, let's not forget that. But following that salvation, following that, we live by the same faith. And it will begin to demonstrate itself in works. Works being the evidence of the reality of the faith. And will those works be perfect? Ah, but the Lord looks on the heart and He knows those who are His. Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? Well, I think that's nice. 
I'm glad he looks at my heart. Because I can make some really big blunders sometimes. I can say things that, that come out of my mouth and that later on I think, you know, I didn't really mean it to, be, to sound like that. But the Lord sees my heart. Now the second principle we want to gather from this big picture, and obviously we're not able to go, we're not going through all Old Testament uh, Scripture, but we're just looking at two points that have a direct relevance to this story of the rich man and Lazarus. Secondly, in the time of Moses, the law is codified. In the time of Moses, the Lord gives the law and is passed down through the mediation of angels, if you will, according to the Hebrews account, into the hand of Moses. And Moses brings the law. The law of God. Now, within that law, of course, there are many things that the Lord teaches. There are many blessings to be had in the law. There are curses to be had for those who do not obey it. And we recognize all of that. But also contained within the law are a great deal of instructions concerning how you are to deal with the poor. And that's the, one, that's the lesson we want to look at. Many, many other things, of course, you can look at in regards to the law. And we talked about them. And, and just, uh, we just talked about them in the idea that, that uh, one is not justified by the works of the law. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law was the schoolmaster to bring us to belief and faith in Christ. But there's also contained in this law which God gives instructions on how one is to deal with those who are poor. And it's quite elaborate in some of the instructions it gives. In fact, the Lord says to Moses, the poor you will have with you always. Don't think they're going away. Don't think you're going to have some wealth and prosperity message and if everybody believes, everybody's going to be wealthy because it isn't going to be that way. You are always going to have poor in your midst. Now, sometimes, like Proverbs mentions, sometimes that poverty is because of laziness. And that's a whole different subject altogether. But when people are poor, there is a responsibility given to the nation as a whole and to individuals within that nation toward those who are in need. Whether that came by famine, whether it came by the death of a spouse, whatever it was that created this need, they have a responsibility. Now, there are many references that, that deal with this. They were to have equal treatment before the law. Just because they were poor doesn't mean they should be not treated equally when they stand before the judge. That was a very big principle and an important principle because it's very easy as it is today for someone who has a lot of money to have a lot of influence and be able to turn the judge's ear, turn his head. In Israel, it was not to be so. It was not to be so. They were to have the same standard as it's supposed to be here as well. Leviticus 25 tells them, If your brother that dwells by you become poor and be sold unto you to pay his debt, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave, but as a servant. You see, now you've got this, you've got this system that is set up, this system that is set up that he can actually 
lend out his services to someone as payment for debt. Now we do that today and we don't call it we don't call it slavery. Sometimes you may someone may do something good for you and you, they'll help you out and you'll say, you know, I don't have any money, but, but I'm glad to come work on your house for, for a couple of days. And I can do this and I can do that. And they do it, and it's it's not because they're they're being forced to do it, but they're they're serving to pay off a debt. And they did so in the economy of Israel. Let him let him serve. He's not a slave in your house. He's not a slave. He's a servant. And don't treat him like a slave. Treat him like a servant. He has certain rights. If he had to sell his land, well, he can buy it back. He can buy it back. Deuteronomy chapter 15 instructs us, If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates, in thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden your heart nor shut up your hand from the poor brother. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you know, in your gates, because that was the typical thing, and we'll look at this in just a little bit more in a moment. They're, they're at the gate, and if you're walking by, and you're coming in the gate, and you see these poor people here, recognize your obligation. Recognize your obligation. This was a very, very difficult thing for Joyce and I in the Philippines. As you've seen in Niger, as you see in different places, that there are many poor. And you know what becomes sad? And this is a confession. After a while, you don't even see him anymore. You become jaded. Because you see them all the time. You forget their need. And of course, with those within the assembly that you know more personally, you're able to help and you're able to encourage. Meet needs. But they had a responsibility. Then that same portion in Deuteronomy 15 continues, Beware that there not be a thought in thy wicked heart saying, The seventh year, the year of release is at hand. And your eye be evil against your poor brother. You do not give him anything. And he cries unto the Lord against you. It would be a sin unto you. Don't say, oh, the year of Jubilee is coming. and I'm going to have to release him at the year of Jubilee. So I'm going to hold off. Don't let those kind of thoughts enter your mind. So the law taught them. For the poor shall never cease out of the land. You shall open your hand wide unto your brother, to the poor and the needy in the land. And so on and so on. Over and over again, the Old Testament giving instructions. So the law was quite strict against those who do not care for the downtrodden. Now, as I said, there were those who were, who were poor because of laziness. That's a whole different story. But the Lord says in Proverbs the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Ah, now we come into another principle which is very, very hard for us to grasp, but I'm not going to spend any time with it because I can't really grasp it, but you can grasp it, perhaps. The Lord in His sovereignty has made some rich and He has made some poor. 
I'm leaving it there. He has allowed it to be in His sovereignty. And now those who have much can bless those who have have nothing. And we'll, we'll see a little bit more of this as we go forward in our story. So, we remember the words of Jeremiah. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. As soon as we get a glorying in riches, you've got a problem. Because the Word of God teaches us that the love of money is a root of all evil. The love of it. If our love is toward the Lord God, oh, He can prosper and He can use you for His glory. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing to be used by the glory of the Lord. Now, I mentioned before culture, and culture does play into this because some of the culture, a lot of the culture that you find in the Old Testament economy that flows on into the New Testament economy into where we are in our portion this morning, there are cultures that are built around the law. They're structured around what the law teaches. And so one of these customs became that if a man was poor or if a man was crippled or lame or blind and could not fend for himself, could not provide a living for himself, that they were to, in the custom of the day, take that... They had no hospitals. They had no Medicaid. They had no... They had no welfare benefits. They had nothing they could grasp onto from the government to give them, to help them through their time of disability. And so what the custom was, was to take these men or women and lay them down at the gate of the city, lay them down at, by a pool where people would be customarily going by, lay them down by the gate of a rich man, so that when they passed by, they would see them and their call for alms and graciously, by the will and purpose of God, give them something to help them. It doesn't say how much. The Lord sees the heart. And so there was that responsibility in that custom of the day to give to those who were in need. And culturally, it became an obligation to give. And it was the culturally accepted norm. Okay, we've gone from the big picture. Now we need to zoom down just a little bit, get closer to the house, and see now what we can, what we can see as we get closer to the context of our portion. You will remember that when the Gospels are written, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, He inspires those men who pen those narratives and who pen those words to portray the Lord Jesus Christ in different ways. Right? It is very clear 
in Matthew, as we were reading out of Matthew this morning, it's very clear in Matthew that Matthew's goal is to present the Lord Jesus Christ as the King. He's the King. And you see that tremendous irony on the cross. That tremendous irony on the cross. When those, those soldiers that we were talking about today, that we were talking about earlier today, those soldiers take the Lord Jesus, strip Him of His clothes, put that scarlet robe on Him, put a scepter in His hand made out of a reed, plant a crown of thorns down on His head, and then mockingly, mockingly bow before Him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! Bam! They're whacking Him on the head with the reed. They're spitting in His face. Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! Did they think for a moment that He was a king with any kind of authority? Absolutely not. And they're laughing and having a great time at the expense of this one. But the irony is, He is the King! He is the King! And not only is He the King of Israel, He is the King of all! He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords that has humbled Himself to be taken by wicked hands and crucified according to the plan and purpose of God. Oh, another one of those compatibilisms that's so hard for us to grasp. Mark takes the same material as a witness of things and lays them out under inspiration of the Word of God to present the Lord Jesus as a servant. The one who has come to serve. And truly He is the servant. And we see that also in the irony of the cross. We won't take the time for that this morning. But He's the servant. And then we find we come to Luke, the narrative that we're looking at this morning once again. And as we come to Luke, we recognize that here he is presenting the Lord Jesus as the Son of Man. Looking at his incarnation in the sense of he, he's the one who carries the birth narrative to the, the most. He's writing an orderly account for Theophilus, who is probably a wealthy man as well writing a, a, a story concerning this one and his incarnation and sees him as the Son of Man. And we recognize that the Son of Man is a phraseology that the Jews would readily understand, as I mentioned last time we were together, that he draws right out of Daniel, the Son of Man is the Messiah. And you will find also, even though... It, most will say, and you can agree or disagree, that He's presenting Him as the Son of Man. He is also presenting Him as the Lord of Glory. And then, of course, John. In John's beautiful fashion, shares Him as the Son of God. The Son of God. The Word that has become flesh and dwelt amongst us. But you'll notice with Luke, that Luke is drawing material. Luke was not an eyewitness. Remember we talked about this last time? Did we talk about this? Yeah, I think we did. He was not an eyewitness. He was gathering his material. He gathered some from Mark. He gathered those from other witnesses. And he put it all together in a logical form. 
Now, as I mentioned last time, and we need to refresh our minds on this because it is imperative to our understanding of this particular story, is that is that Luke now, from chapter 9, verse 51, on through 19, where the crucifixion takes place, that through that period of time, he presents the Lord Jesus Christ as going to Jerusalem. From 51 on, 9.51 on, he is pictured over and over by the phrase, he was heading toward Jerusalem. Going toward Jerusalem. The other Gospels will have him going up to Galilee and back and forth in different places, which he does. But in Luke's narrative, he is seeking to focus our attention on the fact that Jesus Christ was heading toward Jerusalem. And what does that mean? It means he's heading toward the cross. All of that you're seeing must be taken in light of the fact that he is heading toward the cross. He is heading toward His death for the sins of mankind. He is heading toward the resurrection. He is heading toward the ascension. He is heading toward Jerusalem. His face was set as a flint. He said when he was at the Samaritan, remember? They wouldn't accept him because his face was set like a flint to Jerusalem. And so, part of this context is not only that he is being presented as the Messiah, the Son of Man, Not only that He is being presented as the Lord of glory, but that He is being presented here as the crucified Savior. He's being presented as the one who is on His way to the cross. And when you're reading these narratives and you're listening to these quotations and you're listening to the quotes that are going on, remember as a part of your context that it is in light, in the shadow of, if you will, the cross. All those, all those little details are important when we get to this story. All of those details. If you just read it and forget all those details, you'll still be able to understand some. You'll still grasp some. But I think you will get a better understanding of this story if we keep those things in mind. Now, we've got a few moments. We're going to narrow in now on the narrative itself out of, out of Luke 16, beginning at verse 19. Now, with this, these thoughts in the back of our mind, let's enter in to the narrative that is before us. You remember that Jesus has just spoken, and, and again, this kind of goes to context, it's the immediate context, that Jesus has just spoken two parables about money and wealth. Before he gets to this one, he's just spoken two parables about money and wealth in this arrangement that, that Lucas set out before us. He told the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son squandered his father's money. He took his inheritance. He squandered his father's money with riotous living. The next parable is of the servant who squandered his master's money. And he went out and, and literally was stealing that which was rightfully his master's. You owe a hundred. Let's write it down as fifty, and you'll be my friend later on when I get kicked out of the out of the master's house. 
and I'm gaining all these friends because I'm, I'm deducting all the stuff that they owe from their master's account. He was shrewd, but he squandered his master's money. Now, when you get to this third account that is dealing with money, it is a squandering of your own money. It's a misuse and squandering of your own wealth, your own money that we will see in this story of Lazarus and the rich man. And he also taught, you remember in that parable, that you cannot serve both God and money. Very poignant, very strong statement that he makes because around him are the Pharisees. And he goes on to say, and the Pharisees were lovers of money. They were lovers of money. And we see from some of the other accounts in Matthew and John and so forth that they would do things in order to get more money and then just kind of bury it. Like, oh, no, it's okay because we're the Pharisees and it's okay because it's under the law. It's Corbin. (laughs) It's okay. And they tried to squander the Lord's money and make it for themselves. And you cannot serve God in money. You... And again, the issue becomes that of idolatry, right? What do we, what do we concern ourselves with? What is the focus of our lives? Nothing wrong with earning money, is there? What's the focus of your life? To honor the Lord by the things which He blesses me with. So here we go. Then, you know that the Pharisees were lovers of money and they scoffed at Jesus when he gave that second parable that we mentioned. They scoffed at him. Why did they scoff at him, do you think? He's a poor fella from Galilee. He's a poor fella out of Nazareth. He doesn't have a lot of money. Yeah, it's easy for him to talk about money. Oh, yeah, don't be a lover of money. (laughs) You won't have any. And we tend to be that way. You know, we, we have to be careful of our own self-justifications. You know? I mean, I, I was listening to someone, and they were talking about uh, having a new car. And they said, I got my new car. You know, and I pulled up along the street, and there pulled up alongside me some, some guy with an old jalopy and said, boy, did I feel good. Looking down my nose at that guy, you know. He forgot when he was in the jalopy. You know? We can justify ourselves sometimes. We can justify ourselves by our intellect, justify ourselves by our our wealth, justify ourselves by the things that we possess, justify ourselves, justify ourselves. And in reality, the only justification that means anything is that which comes from the Lord Himself. It's the only thing that means anything. So the Pharisees consider that a mark against them. Because they, they saw the rich as being blessed by the Lord and the poor as being, yeah, I'm sorry. In fact, some of the teachings of some of the Pharisees in this day of our Lord taught that if you were this kind of poor person, you would not inherit the kingdom. You wouldn't go into the kingdom. Because the Lord was showing His displeasure on you by keeping you in that place. And He's blessed me. You know, we use the same kind of terminology today, don't we? Someone has a lot of money. We say, 
The Lord has really blessed him. And we don't say the other side, do we? We, we're, we don't say the other side, oh, the Lord hasn't blessed you. <laughs> you don't have a lot of money, so the Lord's not blessing you. We would never think to say that, nor would we think it in our minds. But the idea is that the Lord did indeed bless. But all blessing, as, as the old saying goes, all that glitters is in gold. And there comes tremendous responsibility with riches. I've never had to worry about it. That responsibility. Oh, yes, I did. Because when I was on in the Philippines, even though by the standards here I would be considered poor, when I was there I was considered rich. Not that we were, but according to their standard we sure were. So I can understand it a little bit. I can understand it a little bit. God will not accept our lines of reasoning. God will not accept the line of reasoning that says, as the Pharisees thought, because he's poor, God isn't blessing. He tells the Pharisees who love money that they justify themselves before men. But God Knows the heart. Isn't that where it always ends up? Isn't it where it always ends up? The heart. Always ends up at the heart. So he tells them another parable about trusting in money. And our time is gone. So we will hold off getting into, because once you start in, it's kind of tough to kind of chop it up. We'll, we'll held the narrative itself on the rich man and Lazarus, to next week. And if you're not going to be here next week, get the CD and find out the conclusion of the matter. But keep in mind this week, as perhaps you read this over again, keep in mind the overall context by which we have been, which we have been looking at today. And use that overall context to give you a fresh look at the rich man and Lazarus. And next week we'll spend our our hour, or 45 minutes, looking at specifically this narrative and in particular the, the dialogue that goes on in this wonderful story. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful to You for all the ways in which You bless us. Oh, Father, we are just so thankful. So thankful for salvation that is ours because we have placed our faith in Christ. We could not justify ourselves, but You justified us. You made us right through the finished work of Your Son. Oh, Father, we're thankful for what we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, as we contemplate the things that we've thought of this morning, may they give us fresh insight, not only in our own lives, but fresh insight into this story that we will look at next week, that You may... Bless your word to the hearts of each of us. For we ask it in your most precious name. Amen.